Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's producer Harry here. Today's interview is with billionaire Silicon Valley venture capital investor, Tim Draper. So Tim has been investing in um, all sorts of companies and stocks and things like that for around about 30, 35 years. And some of um, the investments in his portfolio include Skype and SpaceX. Someone with that amount of wealth of knowledge, Tim reveals in this interview how to perfectly invest uh, in multiple companies and have a really diverse portfolio. And obviously this is with someone who's been there, done that for decades. Tim also reveals how he's made uh, money during lockdown. Lockdown hasn't stopped him uh, investing and finding avenues how to make money. So it's another billionaire we've had on the podcast. And again, there's a whole wealth of knowledge here. So get ready. But just before we get started, one final thing from me. We also have a YouTube channel, Rob Moore. If you go over and subscribe to the Rob Moore YouTube channel, you can access all sorts of videos that we do there, including this very video with Tim Draper. So we have all our interviews. They uh, are available on the YouTube channel along with everything else we do. So make sure you head over to Rob Moore on YouTube and subscribe. So let's just get straight into the interview with billionaire Silicon Valley venture capital investor, Tim Draper. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Hello, this is Rob Moore here. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur live broadcast. So we're coming to you on Facebook, on YouTube, on LinkedIn. And I I have a very special guest today. So uh, Tim Draper is here on the podcast with us. Tim, thank you very much for giving your time to do this uh, podcast. Good. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Rob. So Tim Tim doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, A lot of my guys in my office were very excited with this interview. We've got quite a few of my team who are pretty uh, quite heavily into Bitcoin and crypto. So they were very excited. Um, Now, Tim, you have a lot of companies. I was doing my research to try and find out exactly how many companies you have. I found Draper VC, Draper Associates, Draper University, Draper Venture Network. I'm sure there are more. So my first question to you is, does that define an entrepreneur having multiple companies and interests? Well, um, that's funny. I never really think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think of myself as a venture capitalist. But in the in growing my venture firms and uh, and building out my business, uh, each time I come up with some kind of new model or innovative idea, um, we need to create something around it. And and those are the vehicles that we've created around it. We actually have, there is a Draper Esprit, which is a listed venture capital firm in London. And they've been a very good partner of ours for a long time. We have a, a Draper Venture Network that they, they're a, a big part of. 
and uh, and so I'm very pleased to be talking to somebody who's who's uh, spreading the word to all the people in the UK. Isn't that isn't that where the audience is here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I think the UK are catching up America a bit, Tim. So uh, we're doing our best. Um, so why are you so diverse? In fact, what would be really good, Tim, for those of us you know who aren't based in America? Um, the diverse range of investments you have and, and why you are that diverse. And if you're not more diverse, why not? So as a venture investor, you, you need to put your money into a variety. Of, as an early stage venture investor, you need to put your money into a variety of different companies because it's sort of one in 10 that makes it big. And so you've got to have at least 20 or 30 in any given fund. And if you've been around a long time, I mean, I've been investing for 34 years, 35, 34, 35 years. And, uh, and you accumulate companies as you go. And so over time, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've got a large accumulation of different companies and we've seeded something like, um, 36 unicorns in those 35 years but we needed to be pretty diverse and and try different things along the way a big part of being an early stage venture capitalist is trying things and being willing to fail and so i will meet somebody and they will be taking me and they'll say hey we're going to do electric cars um, and I'll look at it and say, well, you know, why would I do a car company? You know, they, they've all failed over the last 50 years. But then I think, wow, these electric cars are really fun. Uh, and so I ended up backing uh, Tesla. I, and then somebody else comes to me and says, hey, we're going to give away free web-based email. And I, I say, well, that sounds interesting. How are you going to make money? And they said, we don't know. But I still backed them anyway, and that became Hotmail. And then that was the beginning of, of all of the viral companies that I backed along the way, Skype and a number of others that, uh, that all use some sort of a viral effect. Uh, so in diversify, the diversification came sort of naturally. And I guess I was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist to go to China, for instance. and uh, first one to fund anything in Estonia. Uh, there, there were a lot of firsts, but I kind of have always had that in my head. Um, and I guess you can you can put a few things together. Uh, one of my grandfathers was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist, and my other grandfather was the guy who set up all the offices for Merrill Lynch around the world. And so I kind of. Uh, and then my dad was a great pioneer in venture capital. But I sort of put those two things together. And I, I've always had an international feel. I've always felt that the world was just one big globe that we should all explore. And uh, so I started venture venturing outside of the Silicon Valley and pretty soon set up venture funds all over the world. And um, and I kept the Draper brand on many of them, and I connect them all because everybody's better off because we we all work together for best practices and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, the diversification is um, is just the nature of of a natural growth 
path for my venture business. Oh, and the other things that have happened, the other things that I've built have been for deal flow for venture capital. So Draper University trains heroes, trains extraordinary people to become even more extraordinary. And that, um, that they all seem to connect me with a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and bring more entrepreneurs into my fold. Uh, Draper Startup Houses, same thing. They're, they're a natural attraction for entrepreneurs wherever they may be. Uh, and they, then they send me a lot of deals and, uh, and the Draper Venture Network, same thing. So, and then keeping a very high profile uh, as Tim Draper and having had the exact same email address for many, many years, Tim at Draper.vc, I get, um, I get all these business plans that come through that. So it's, um, it seems very diverse, but it's really all around building venture capital because I've always loved entrepreneurs. I love what they do for the world. I love the progress that they bring us, they bring us and, and jobs they bring us and the wealth they bring us and the, you know, happier people and, um, and they explore the world in new ways. Uh, it, it, entrepreneurs are just great for our world and we need to support them in any way we can. Amen to that. <laughs> so many people say only invest in what you know, what you deeply understand. And it seems like you've invested in some things maybe you didn't initially understand because you're quite diverse. So do you have a model? Do you have a set of rules that you invest in a company or, or an entrepreneur by? Yeah, they, um, I'm always looking for those entrepreneurs that are a little bit the outlier because if I were to do just late stage investing, it would be pretty easy to know the entire field because by the time they get that size, um, there are plenty of Google searches you can do and you can, you know, some Wikipedia pages and whatever. You can do a lot of research on those companies. But if a company comes to me and they are doing something entirely new, there isn't that much research I can do. So I have to sort of just project out what's the world going to look like 5, 10, 15 years from now if these guys are successful? And that's the question I ask. It's very different from many other venture capitalists who, when they're putting their money to work, they're saying, what could go wrong here? Um, I think, what if it works? That's my big question. What if it works? If this thing works, then what's the world look like? And how great does it become? And how exciting does it become? And, uh, and I think that that will, um, that actually for early stage venture capital is a better question. Mm. It's more exciting. Uh, it's one that, that gets people thinking about the future and what the future is going to look like. And, and people have sort of said, oh, Draper, how did you know Bitcoin was going to hit 10,000 at that exact date? How did you know that Bitcoin's going to you think that it's going to be worth this much? Or how do you how did you project that? I mean, God, how did you know that Tesla was going to be a big success? Well, I, I spend all this time interviewing entrepreneurs. They're all telling me what the future is going to look like. I have no idea what's going on today. In fact, this virus thing has been a blip on the screen for me. But but the rest of the what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years. I have a pretty good view of because that's all I meet 
I meet all these people who are trying to put a picture in my head of what the world's going to look like. And I start combining one with another, and then I get this view. And then that's the view that I, um, that I espouse and I, uh, and I bet on as I make those investments. Okay, so you use the word exciting quite a few times there, and I love hearing that from, you know, whether you call yourself an entrepreneur, businessman, a, you know, a venture investor. Um, for me, I always hear business and entrepreneurship. And I always get excited when I talk to people who get excited about business. So what what's the most or one of the most exciting investments or exciting companies you've backed and why? Well, I, I, I think I've, I've backed some very exciting companies. Um, you know, I think when, when we backed Hotmail and then later Skype, they, they allowed the entire world to com- communicate with each other free. And that opened up the world. The world suddenly was no longer this tribal, strange thing where we have artificial borders and we're trying to protect ourselves from those people across the border. All of a sudden, we realize the people across the border are great too, and uh, and and the world economy just expanded because of those companies, and it became a a very important uh, thing to have global communication. You could start doing deals where in places you never thought you could, just because people had access to the internet. <clears throat> I think those two probably have had the biggest impact on the world. Although, um, you know, we backed Baidu. We were the first venture investors in China. We backed Baidu. And that allowed everyone in China to have access to all that information. And I think, you know, it's the Google for China. And I think that 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 had a really big impact on the billion Chinese. Uh, So I think those were, those really had a big impact and now communications of all forms have uh, taken us to we back uh, twitch TV um, and then uh, and then I I think that recently I got very excited that the financial world was about to go through a huge transformation and so I ended up backing uh, Robinhood and um, Carta and AngelList and um, and Bitcoin itself and Coinbase um, in order to uh, because I thought <clears throat> yeah the world's going to go through a big transformation people aren't going to want to uh, pay the banks two and a half to four percent every time they swipe their credit card they're going to want the new frictionless. Uh, currency that's going to be open and transparent and global because the world's going to be global. Uh, so I got, uh, anyway, those are the, I guess that was the flow of where I went from, wow, global communications to uh, global funds. And I think that the next step will be global governance uh, which would include insurance and real estate and a whole bunch of other fields that are going to go through major transformations because um, governments now have to compete for us because if the world goes global, they either trap their people, <laughs> which they're kind of doing right now, they either trap their people in place 
and they say you can't move, uh, or they recognize that, hey, this is a global world, this is a global economy, we need to open it up, and uh, and for the good of our people, we want to have as much free trade as possible. Uh, I think that, that leads us toward um, governments that compete for us, and a lot of what governance does can be done at the virtual level. It can be done just with, you know, smart contracts and Bitcoin and artificial intelligence can actually put the all the insurance parts of government together. So I, I think that that's kind of a direction I'm looking toward. I also think healthcare and data, this is sort of a, it's not a, a clear picture on the wave, but um, right now data can do a better job of diagnosing a patient than a doctor. And when combined with a doctor, they do even better. And the data that you can get on a patient doesn't isn't just about medical records. It could be blood test results and Fitbit results and genetic history and where you've what you've eaten and what plane, airplane seat you sat in and a whole, whole bunch of other things. And stuff that doctors would never think to ask. And then on the therapeutic side of healthcare, you're going to see, um, just as you have with COVID, you're going to see a disease here, and then you're going to see um, people to use use computational biochemistry to determine what the drug is that's going to cure that disease. And uh, and you can do that much better and much faster through computational biochemistry than you can through a wet lab. Uh, and so that world is going to change in a big way. And the, <clears throat> the drugs that are developed are going to be specific to you. They're going to be bespoke drugs. Uh, they're not going to be like one size fits all, which is what most of the drug companies run on today. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. I wrote in my book, Life Leverage, about leveraging your time. Let's be honest, no one is getting less busy. And two things that have really changed my life in terms of information and the speed of information is audiobooks on two times speed and podcasts like this. But there's a company I believe that are really changing the game. They're called Blinkist and they condense the best books into 15 minute summaries. Blinkist have an ever growing library. I personally really like Sapiens. I also like Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And I think you will like it when all my books are on there. So right now, for a limited time, Blinkist have a special offer that I've agreed with them just for my podcast listeners. You need to go to Blinkist.com slash Rob to start your seven-day trial. And Blinkist is spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com forward slash Rob to start your seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com forward slash Rob. Right, let's get back into the episode. Okay. Thank you, Tim. So you talked a bit about the future there, but I want to go back in the past now, if that's okay, because I'm fascinated by how how you built your empire. Um, so maybe you could take us back right to the start where you can remember getting into mm -hmm. the world now and just take us on that little bit of a journey. Give us some highs and lows. Um, I'm going to sit back for a few minutes and enjoy the show. <laughs> okay, I will. Um well, okay, my grandfather was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist. My dad was a pioneer in venture capital, but he he had left the venture business about six years before I got out of business school. 
And I would I went and I joined a, an investment bank as the token venture capitalist, and they didn't really want me to invest any money. I was just sort of that was their way of getting me to be an investment banker. And so then I um, I went out and I was able to take um, over this uh, this private uh, these private companies that the SBIC we had a, we had a government program a small business investment company program where if you could put up a dollar they would put up three and you could borrow that three and then pay it back ten years later with interest. Um, so I used that program, and I I uh, I had some cats and dogs that uh, were in my dad's portfolio before, and they were all private companies. And they added up to two million dollars worth of value, uh, or they were valued at two million dollars. So I went to the SBA, and they allowed me to borrow six million dollars against that. Um, and I remember the guy going. I went through the. He was going through the checklist. And he and he goes, well, wait, says here you got to have 10 years of investment experience. And I said, oh, I've been investing since I was 10. And he just looks at me. He goes, check. Um, The bureaucracies never allow that stuff anymore. But this was, uh, you know, back then, that's the way it worked. And um, and so I borrowed six million and it looked after three years. It looked like I had uh, lost all the money, lost the the borrowed money lost the the initial uh, capital and uh, and the SBA put me on their watch list and then they put me on their dirt list and I flew back to Washington I said don't call this loan you, you, it's going to be okay hang in there I wasn't sure but it, I thought it might and then uh, the the IPO window opened up there used to be this sort of time that everybody would rush in and everybody wanted to invest in public companies. And the window opened up and I, I five of the companies I had backed went public in about a three-month period of time. And one of them is called Parametric Technology became worth about, uh, now it's, I think, over $10 billion. Um, and and we had an early investment in there, and that was able to pay back all of the loans and give my uh, you know the my dad fifteen uh, percent return. And then I was clear, and I had made a bunch of money, and I put that money to work and raised a fund based on my record. Um, brought in a partner, John Fisher. Uh, the two of us went out and hustled up a $20 million fund. And then we started to put that to work. And then everything was great for a while. I brought in Steve Jervis and we ended up with this amazing fund, series of funds. We hit the internet just right. And then we really started to expand. We went global. Um, I focused very much on the global businesses and the and the investments we made there. And those worked out pretty well because we did have Skype and Baidu. But there was also a time there where uh, the investors were yelling at us because it was 2001, I guess. Uh, the investors were saying, oh my gosh, you've lost us all this money and how horrible and whatever. And um, we ended up uh, doing quite well with that international fund. 
but there was a period of time there where uh, the markets came crashing down and we felt like we had to take all the blame for it. And it was good. It was good experience because um, we kind of figured out what we were made of. Uh, and we realized that we could stand up in front of all those people who thought they lost all their money and say, hey, you know, we got our we got your money into the places we said that we were going to put it into. You know, this is a, you know, a crash and we're suffering through crash. We're all in it together. <laughs> like when they're talking about we're all in it together on the virus. Um, and uh, and we were hoping things start to pick up. And it turned out they did. <laughs> we were able to keep going. And then when um, things w went very well, um, I, I decided to um, go solo uh, separate from my the partnership. My partnership, I had grown it to 14 or something partners and uh, and I couldn't get deals done. So I, I was feeling like, you know, I, I want to go back to getting deals done. And, uh, and so I started doing that again. And I uh, really enjoyed this. And during this time where um, we're in solo, I made Bitcoin bet. I, I made some amazing, you know, I got lucky with some amazing investments um, around crypto, around self-driving cars and um, Twitch TV and a whole bunch of others uh, that seem to be doing incredibly well. So, uh, so I'm glad I went solo. Uh, but that was a big decision too, leaving your partnership to, um, you know, partnership that I built uh, and starting over. And by starting over, I was able to start Draper University of Heroes. I was able to um, uh, expand the the Draper Venture Network, and um, I was able to sort of run it the way I wanted to run it, as opposed to a partnership where you have to kind of be a good debater. To win the argument to get something done. Um, now I can just kind of be the dictator, and uh, and it's been working out very well. I'm sort of dictator, but I also have you know investment committees and all that stuff I have to go through. But uh, it's a lot easier to get things done than it was with the 14 partners. So there, I gave you 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 sat back, you <laughs> got to hear the story, and now you can ask me another question. Yeah. So why do you do what you do? I love it. Um, you know, the people ask me, well, what's a good day? A good day is when I meet a true entrepreneur, somebody who is going to dedicate their life to something, whether they whether I invest in them or not. They have just decided to do it. And it's a train leaving the station. If I want to get on the train, I can get on the train. And if I don't, you know, then I'm, I miss the boat or miss the train. Um, it. Uh, so those those are the people who I do it for. I, and um, and I think, you know, once you've you've had enough success to sort of, you know, make sure all your kids get through college and all that, um, there's there's something else. And that is I look back and I think, wow, I back some companies that have had a huge impact on the world. And so uh, that has in some ways it's raised the bar for me. Because I'm saying, look, every time I meet an entrepreneur, I've got to feel like this thing, if it works, it's got to make a huge impact on the world. 
And, uh, and so I'm always uh, looking at the entrepreneur that way. I'm saying, are you going to be the one who makes this huge impact on the world? And what does the world look like at that point? Is it a better world or worse? It's rarely a worse world, but is it significantly better? Does it, does it move us? Like, does it get us to Mars? Does it cure cancer or does it, you know, get us uh, so that we can teleport or whatever? Or, or is it something where it's like, yeah, I can, I can do a little bit better social media thing. Um, I think it's got to have an impact where I feel like, wow, this, and this person is so unique that they're going to make it happen. Um, Anyway, that's what gets me going in the morning. I get excited even in this like lockdown thing. I still get dressed up. You know, I got my Bitcoin tie on and I, I say goodbye to my wife. I say bye, honey. And then I just close the door to my home office. And here I am in my home office. And uh, and then I work here all day. And then I, at the end of the day, I come back. I say, honey, I'm home. <laughs> and uh, and I I just keep at it because I feel like I don't want to. I, I want to make sure I uh, I'm driving it forward. I want to make sure that I'm not sitting in pajamas eating pizza. You know, destroying my life just because these guys, the government says to lock down. I I would uh, I I feel like it's a this is a really important time. In fact, it's so important now for a venture capitalist because uh, the the entrepreneurs, the small businesses are the ones who create all the net new jobs. And this government lockdown has created 40 million unemployed in the U.S. and 400 million around the world that are unemployed. As a venture capitalist, I look at that as a responsibility on my shoulders. I got to back the companies. They're going to get big enough to employ all those people. And uh, so that gets me going. A lot of things get me going. But the other thing is, it's so exciting, is, and it started with Bitcoin, a decentralized currency, a global currency. All of a sudden, this decentralized world is opening up to us where governments have to compete for us. Um, it's a new world. It's an open, transparent, happy world that we can, that in the next 15 years, we're going to see. And I want to push to get there sooner. Okay. I'm, I'm with you all the way there, Tim. So um, you invest a lot of money that is not your own. And um, does that take a certain type of person because you've lost other people's money? I, I, I'm sure. Um, and I know some people would find that hard. How do you manage such huge amounts of money that aren't your own? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's less and less as a percentage. So if I'm losing your money, um, it's usually because I'm losing more of my own. Uh, and so I don't feel that I feel like, hey, I'm I'm giving it my all if and I, and it's my own money in there. Um, so, you know, it's a lot easier for me to think about now than it was before. Um, before I, I put in a very small amount of money, I didn't have much, put in a small amount of money and I, I would uh, raise a lot of money alongside it. And uh, and I had. Um, and I had made 
a lot of money for a lot of people at the beginning. And then when when the markets came crashing down 2001 to 2008, uh, we made a lot of money for a lot of people on our international fund, but our domestic fund did not. Uh, two funds did not. And uh, and that is hard. That's one of those things where I keep thinking, well, you know, maybe we'll have another big win there somewhere. You know, the companies have been around for 15 or 20 years. Maybe maybe they'll get a kick or something. and. Uh, we'll be eventually able to get these guys um, 100% of their money back. Um, we're usually pretty close to getting all their money back, even in a horrible bear market. Um, but then if they'd stayed with us the whole way, uh, then they would have done very, very, very well, uh, uh, even though they would have had ups and downs and fits and starts. Uh, so, yeah, if the I feel that responsibility, but there's something else. I like being an institution. It it helps me with a whole bunch of other things. So if I'm a fiduciary, which means I have to, I am taking care of somebody else's money, then um, then I can uh, I can negotiate from that position rather than just it's my money and I'm an angel and I throw the money around. Um, I'm investing as a fiduciary. I have to invest under these terms because I have to be looking out for my partner's money to get them their return too, and uh, and that creates a um, a stronger negotiating position with our entrepreneurs, and it also um, makes sure that I'm taking very good care of their money, and in, in doing so, I'm taking care, good care of my own money. Okay. So this is a four in one question. I've never asked a four in one question before. Um, Wikipedia has. I'll take a. <laughs> so Wikipedia has your net worth at around one billion. So my four questions are one, how accurate is that? Two, has it gone up or down in the lockdown? Three, what's the upside of being so wealthy? And four, what's the downside of being so wealthy? Interesting. Um, I, you know, I, when I played Monopoly, I never showed anybody how much money I had. So, <laughs> so that you're not going to get out of me. Um, up or down? I, I actually, I am surprisingly up on the lockdown. Um, and here's what's happened: first, Bitcoin's done very well, and I have a lot of Bitcoin. Um, and other cryptocurrencies have done very well, and I have a lot of other cryptocurrencies. And the dollar has gone crashing down, or will go crashing down. I don't know if it has yet, but it will because they've printed nine trillion of it, um, and so they're not as strong a commodity as they used to be. Um, and uh, and where I thought the lockdown was really going to hurt our companies, turns out it did hurt. The companies that have that are capital intensive, the ones that have physical objects for sale, but the ones who are tied to VR or um, you know, when people have been locked down, they've they've put the VR equipment on and they've tried stuff, um, and the ones that are tied to uh, Bitcoin uh, have done very well because. When people have been tied down, they've been saying, well, what is all this about Bitcoin? I might as well go try to get a wallet. 
And so a lot of people have real that the number of Bitcoin wallets has exploded during that. And I think also people are saying, wait a second, you know, I really had a lot of confidence in the dollar until they decided to print nine trillion of them. Uh, they they started to lose a little of that confidence. And some people went and said, well, I'll put it into gold. And I've always thought of gold as, you know, a weird cyclical commodity. But Bitcoin, there are only 21 million of them. And they are going to be more and more valuable as you see governments have less and less uh, where the citizens are less and less confident in their government's ability to manage a currency. Um, upside of being rich um, is it's um, I, I, I don't worry too much when I spend money. I think that's a that's a nice upside. So um, I'm not looking at a restaurant bill. Um, I'm not too worried if my car breaks down. And these are things that I used to really care about uh, when I was starting out. Um, the downside is also an upside. The downside is um, I get mobbed by people who are starting businesses and want money or just want money um but the benefit of that is i get a great deal flow from that and so that has been a very helpful thing um and uh and then i um you know i i don't have to um there are things where i i don't have to worry about i don't have to worry about a mortgage now um and uh and so I and I appreciate all of the things that I used to have to worry about. Since I used to have to worry about them, um, I do understand <laughs> that it is uh, it's tough living. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. And now um, my heart really goes out to the people or, you know, somebody who's a waitress and has three kids. You know, what do you do? There's no you know you got to come up with a new job you got to figure it out you got to get back on the treadmill somehow and anybody who doesn't have a job that that kills me because that's when people start going off the rails emotionally they get into drug use they get into problems um i think i've been lucky that way i've been lucky in that i never never took drugs never i don't, I don't drink um and it has uh, that has helped me a lot because I'm I'm always kind of whatever the brain cells I had I've, I've still got many of them. I've I've lost some but I've got <laughs> many of them um, and I think that uh, I do think that uh, struggling for money can take up a huge part of your brain and if you're not struggling for money anymore. You're thinking about the good of the long-term good of society. You have a much broader view, and you can make investments that are much longer term. Uh, and so, I think that might be the best part of it. If I'm if I'm thinking, you know, looking meal to meal, that's like that's all I got on my plate. Um, if I'm thinking paycheck to paycheck, I'm just thinking I, all I think about is a week. A week at a time. If I'm thinking, well, I've got enough money to take care of myself, 
then that solves one problem. But then uh, if I have enough money to uh, to invest and to uh, help other people become successful, then I can start thinking about well, how is that going to help society? You know, what's what's the long term? What can I do? And I, I don't have to think short short term at all. I, I can just think long term. And uh, and I think that frustrates a lot of the people around me because I'm, you know, when when everybody's locked down on COVID, I'm saying, yeah, you know, you're saving some lives short term, long term. You're you're destroying lives. Mm. And and I'm not sure. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm not sure that we didn't destroy more lives than we saved. And uh, and so I was not for the idea of lockdown. I was not for the idea of people wearing masks. I always thought that was like a sheep thing. Um, I'm a freedom guy and I'm thinking long term, it's important for all to be free. So I guess that. That, that must be the benefit mm. is that I can think longer term. And then the people around me might be saying, well, wait, you know, you're, you're killing people if you don't stay six feet apart and keep a mask on. And part of me thinks, well, you know, that may be, but I, you're killing more by shutting down all these restaurants and travel. And, you're, you know, that ends up being much worse long term. And, if we're all locked in place and we're all doing exactly what the government tells us to do, we're not a free people anymore. Mm. Um, and I think I can think that way probably because I uh, am not concerned about my next meal. And I'm also, um, you know, I, I'd be willing to die for freedom, for the freedom of my grandchildren and their children and their children. I would definitely be willing to make the personal sacrifice. Wow. So changing subject, we've got, I think I'll probably take one more fairly long question as long as you want Tim, And then because I want to make sure we respect your time, we'll do a quick fire and I'll give you the sort of rough time we've got left. This fascinates me because in my first, in my first 10 years of being an entrepreneur, I probably had as many PAs, as many assistants, probably about 10. I wasn't very good at keeping them. And from my research, it looks like you've had the same personal assistant for 30 years. So you win that one. Um, and I also understood you did a lot of interviews um, to find the right person. So can you give me some hiring and retaining advice, please? It was really interesting. Well, she was my first hire. Wow. So I was very careful and I interviewed 75 different possible assistants before I hired her. And I kept thinking, God, can they, can't they find me the person for the, you know, and I, I kept looking and looking and looking and, and then all of a sudden somebody, uh, uh, my ex-brother-in-law said, Hey, well, this woman, our company's going bankrupt said, and this woman's available. You might want to talk to her. And I met her and, and within like 10 minutes, I said, well, how much were you making there? And I knew she was about to lose her job there. And I said, okay, well, I'll make it. Uh, I guess I, I gave her something about 8% higher than whatever she was making there. Um, and I said, you know, let's, let's go. And, uh, 
and she accepted right on the spot and we we've never looked back. Yeah, I've been in the business now 35 years. She's been with me for 33 years. And she runs the place. <laughs> and um and I think um it, it depends on whether you're getting rid of the assistants or they are bailing on you as to what advice I would give you. Um, I think if they're leaving you, you better look inside and think about why, you know, how do I keep them? If you're getting rid of them, then I think you, you have to think, you know, what, um, uh, what is it that you really want in an assistant? What, what's the, strong what's the thing that is going to really help drive you forward and i i have found there are people who are just really good at helping they look they anticipate everything you need and they just are good at it and she is so good at it mm -hmm. um i think you that's what you want in an assistant i think is somebody who kind of knows already before mm -hmm. you even you know, it's halfway out of your mouth and she goes, oh, yeah, here, yeah. you know, or I, I'll say, who is that guy? And she'll say, you know, George Schmurgle. And I go, oh, yeah, that's right. How did you? Rem All I said was, who is this guy? <laughs> so we kind of share a brain. Fortunately, mm -hmm. hers is very good. And, to, you know. I don't care how good someone is and how good you are. 33 years is impressive to, to you know, to work with someone that that must take some work. Um, so how do you maintain really long relationships in business partnerships, you know, with staff? Because obviously you're saving a recruitment fee every two years. So you're saving 15, 16 recruitment fees, you're saving training, you're saving employment <laughs> tribunals, that's saving a lot of money. Well, she's she makes a ton of money, so we're we're good there. Um, I think it's a communications thing. Um, but we now share the same office, so that's that's a nice thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so she always knows what's going on. Yeah, uh, and I think that helps. I think if you're in two different places, it's a little tougher. Yeah, um, and then um, you know, I worked with the same partners for a very very long time. And they, they, uh, we, we, we work very well together for a very long time. And, um, and going solo was very difficult for me because I, I felt like I was breaking with all those good relationships. Um, think of it as a relationship. Think of it as a family. I think those are always good things to think about. Yeah. Okay, great. So now let's move into the quick fire. So I reckon we've, got maybe five six minutes left so i'll pick about six of these so you can do about one minute each tim um it's up to you Sounds of course great. if you want to do less but um the first thing would be what one asset or skill would you say has got you where you are today i think it's a a, a people sense and an understanding of people's motivation i think that's probably what i'm good at Oh, I, I, I've also had a um, pretty good skill since I came up with the idea for um, to spread hot mail around the world. Uh, the the idea for P.S. I love you. Get your free email at Hotmail. It um, 
it spread around the world very, very quickly. So I, I started to realize that you want to make your customer into your sales force. So I ended up um, coming up with good, I, I have a good way of helping people think about their business model. I think that's another thing. Um, okay. But there are a lot of a lot of flaws in this one here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't ask that, Tim, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I know. I'm sure that's the next question. <laughs> what advice would you give to the young or nouveau riche? So the people who've just started to become successful but don't have, you know, decades of experience like you, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, um, <coughs> I would not – I would – uh, make as I would keep making money and I would not spend it. Um, I would stay frugal, stay with what it was that helped you make the money and, uh, and feel good about money because when you, when you've earned it, that means you've made a deal with somebody that worked out very well for the two of you. Um, and whenever you make a deal with somebody, you're both going to be better off. At least that's the, ambition is for both of you to be better off so continue to make deals continue to think in terms of um of growing your wealth and spreading your wealth um and help people become more successful like pe people like you become more successful i think that's a, a healthy attitude uh you want to just keep keep uh putting it back out there so uh so that it can um it can grow and multiply or you lose it. I mean, take it, it comes and it goes and feel like feels feel fine with both. Um, you know, make sure that you, you're covering your family and whatever else you need to cover. But beyond that, just think in terms of, hey, I'm, what, what do I feel is going to be good use of this money? And that is usually not putting it into a nonprofit. That's usually putting it into a for profit because by making money, those businesses can spread and spread a good goodwill around the world a lot faster and a lot more efficiently than a nonprofit that has to keep asking you for money. Hmm. Why did you accept this podcast interview? I heard you were a big deal. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Tim. You've made I'm my glad point. I did. I like these questions. They've gotten me to think in new ways. So good. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you. This one's from one of our community members, Natalie, Natalie Bailey. Yeah, another thing is my, my dad taught me something. He said, if, if, if there's any question in your mind, just say yes. You get so much farther and your life is so much more full if you just say yes. It's, mm. it, it, it can be a magic word. And what gives okay, you the most get on joy? To your next question. Yeah, no, no, sure. No, I'm listening. I'm listening. Uh, what gives you the most joy in life? Um, you know, my kids, uh, and uh, I, and, and then in in work, it's really um, being able to back people who are, you know, have the potential to do something really extraordinary. Mm. Uh, that those are the things that give me the most joy. What's been the hardest thing for you to learn in your whole career? Um, well, it's interesting. I I learned that um, 
I I have an instinct for this business. And you'd, you'd say that, well, that isn't hard. That's a, it turns out it is hard because then I realized that all the partners I hired don't have that instinct. Um, and, uh, and so I, I realized that that, that's a weakness of mine that I, I wasn't able to train them properly or, uh, didn't have the, um, wherewithal to make them all, some really do, but, um, to make them all think the way I do toward, uh, creating great entrepreneurs. I think that may have been the toughest thing I faced. Um, oh, also, it was always tough. Um, it's really funny. When things are really great or they're really bad, those are tough times. When it's really great, you start losing people because they think that this is easy. And when they get really bad, you, uh, you lose people because they've lost faith in you. Um, so those are the, I think those are the tough times. Okay, so these are the closing questions, and we ask these to every guest. These are ones that we ask that are the same throughout. Um, the best advice you can remember ever receiving? Yeah, it came from my grandfather to my father and my father to me, and I've passed it on to my kids, and that is it doesn't matter who's buying or who's selling. It's just the human connection that matters. And, uh, and, and having that connection, having the, the, the ability to do a deal with somebody, do, a, do something for somebody that will make their life better and make your life better, um, you should uh, always be proud to, to sell or buy or, or help or take help. And what's the worst advice you can remember ever receiving? The worst advice usually is driven around uh, fear. Um, it's usually the, the bad advice usually comes from um, people who are trained to tell you all the things that could go wrong. And that's usually lawyers or accountants. Um, but they can give you good advice, that is good legal advice, but they are not necessarily giving you the best advice overall. Um, and so generally, the worst advice comes from people who are scaring you. Um, and I, I think every bad decision I've ever made was made based on fear. Doesn't mean the ones that were made on opportunity were all good. It just means that the worst decisions were all fear driven. Um, so I try not to let fear get into my um, mind. Um, yeah, if you ever read Dune, the science fiction novel, they say, Frank Herbert says, fear is the mind killer. And it is. You, you put fear into people's heads, they, um, they ruin their lives. They, they'll give their mind over to the media. They'll, they'll follow like sheep. They'll, they, they won't have their own opinion. They'll be afraid. Uh, they won't try anything new. Fear is a mind killer. Is there anything wrong with the world that you would like to change? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually think um, customs and borders. I think down the road, this is going to be one world. We are not going to be tribal anymore. We're going to be global. And governance is going to be an industry. 
where the best people, the people who provide the best governance are going to be the ones who get the the payments, the taxes, the whatever. Um, I think a lot of governance can now be done by computer. And so a lot of people in government are kind of going, well, wait, what's what's my role? And so they're they're pulling back and they're sort of becoming even more aggressively tribal. But uh, that's the thing that I think is going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. And it's going to be really transformative for the world. And at the at the end of it, while it goes on, there will be all sorts of turmoil. But at the end of it, I think it'll be the most peaceful and loving world uh, that we could ever imagine. Uh, so that, I think, is a great thing to aspire to. Is there one person that, imagine you were watching this show, whether you're on LinkedIn or Facebook or the podcast, that you would love to watch be interviewed the most? Oh, well, my dad is fantastic. I mean, I I've learned the most from him, I think. Uh, maybe my mom, but she died. Um, who should you interview? Yeah, um, who you would like to watch if I was interviewing them, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'd pick a few. I'd say Peter Thiel, um, Mark Anderson, Elon Musk. I, I would only pick people who think for themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 is he is he frozen there or is he still there harry help me <laughs> hi it's harry again so unfortunately tim's connection cut out and he never returned to finish the interview but we recorded this interview live, and it was a bit of a spur-of-the-moment thing. Me and Rob decided to do a debrief. So we took some of your questions live, and we had a chat about the interview. Now, if this is something you enjoyed, let us know, because we might actually end up doing more content like this after our interviews. So let us know. So let's just get straight into the debrief. We've got loads and loads and loads of comments. I think you can see them on the side here. Do you just want to start uh, scrolling through some of them, answering them? Oh. Yeah, yeah. People are talking about my calm face under pressure of losing the. Yeah, Koha said here she loves his optimism. I think what a lovely, um, positive, energetic, excitable um, man. I definitely hope that Tim can get back because I want to promote his book. Um, yeah, been very kind to answer a lot of questions. So I'm going to tell you now in case he isn't. Um, but he's got a book called Startup Hero. Um, and I, I don't think that needs any selling to you. I think that's obvious that you should go grab that book, Start Up Hero. Um, he gave his email address out. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool thing. He also gave his phone number out at the start, but we weren't live then. Okay, Harry, what do you think? C come in, come in, Harry. Um, because we should start doing this more, by the way. After the Jordan Belfort interview, you and I had a chat afterwards about what we thought. We should do this more. So what did you think? And be honest. I really enjoyed that. I actually didn't know too much about Tim before we did this. Um, obviously, the headlines with Tim, oh, he's a Silicon Valley billionaire. Something I was really surprised about, he's actually created quite uh, some interesting, decisive debates within the comments. So I can see loads of comments here. And um, it kind of ranges from people really loving what he's talking about, you know, regarding entrepreneurship, really loving like his positivity, obviously his message about, you know, 
freedom. Um, you, you can really see he was really passionate about that. So people, you know, like they normally do, lambasting billionaires and stuff like that. It was a lot more decisive than I thought it was going to be. A lot more polarizing. Very interesting. There were some people lambasting billionaires, were they in the comment? That's probably yeah. that's probably LinkedIn, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, you use the word billionaire, Silicon Valley. People then assume you know conspiracy theories and all that good stuff, Rob. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I liked it. Um, when he said, um, when I asked him about his net worth, basically in a roundabout way, yeah. I don't like saying what's your net worth. I think it's a little bit grotesque, but I want to know their net worth. So I've got to find a way of asking because it's interesting, isn't it? And I don't know he said, well, you're not getting that out of me because when I played Monopoly, I never told people how much money I got. I thought that was a brilliant answer. Um, he, he, I get him on the whole thing about not taking for granted the fact that you can repair your car. Um, I just sent my Lamborghini Aventador down for a service, and that's eye-watering, but I don't have to worry about that. I, I never used to be able to afford um, to go out and eat. About 17 years ago, I was with a, a girlfriend of mine, and I was at my skintest point, and she had to buy dinners, and she had to take me out, and she always had to pay for me, and I hated it. I felt really like um, just shame, I guess. And now when I go out for a meal, I really appreciate it, even if it's, you know, a 30 or a 40 pound meal. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that there's not that there's something wrong with being rich. Obviously, people who follow me are entrepreneurs. They, 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 they love being rich and they want to be rich. But the thing he said about not worrying about being skint so you can think about bigger things. That's a massive thing. I always said in my book, Money, that, um, you know, you think about money more when you're poor. Because you haven't got any, you're always trying to figure out how to get some and pay the bills. Once you've got enough, you're not really thinking about money anymore. You're thinking about growth and scale and contribution and solution and entrepreneurship and, and all those kind of exciting things. I don't really think that much about money anymore compared to how I used to. You think about money a lot more when you've got the problems. So do yourself a favor, make a good amount of money, make some money something you don't have to think about too much, and then you can go and do meaningful work. And he articulated that really well. Um, I thought he articulated the question about what's wrong with the world that you want to change. That was the most unique answer we've had because usually you, usually you'll get the climate change or, you know, you'll get some, you know, common things which are obviously important, but that, I thought that was a really unique answer. I also thought, I'll tell you one thing. I was worried like hell. You might've noticed I was very still and very quiet. And I asked a question and I shut up. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, after the interview with Derek Sivers, I was just trying that as a, a sort of a, an evolution of my technique because people actually like it when I'm conversational with my guests. But two, there was, a, there was probably about a second delay mm. on the connection. And that's really, it's really hard to interview someone when there's a second delay because you can't have a dialogue. You cannot because it doesn't work. So I was like, ask my question, shut up. Ask my question, shut up. So in case you thought, that's why I did it. But I think we did well. Only at the very end did I once speak over him. And that was that's not easy to do. Or what not easy not right. What were you most surprised um, about Tim? What did you not know that you now know? Um, I didn't actually know all the companies he backed. Mm. I, I, knew of, um, I knew of Tesla and Skype. I didn't know of Hotmail. And that campaign, that campaign he talked about, the PSI Love You campaign. That was huge. I remember that. Um, and, you know, him being essentially the sort of basically the creator of that. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, it's difficult. I didn't really have a preconception, Harry, because I try not to. He's probably a bit warmer than maybe I expected. And he was probably, 
a bit more passionate than I expected in his art. Um, it sounds like he's, you know, a few people are like, oh, well, your dad did it and your dad, his dad did it before you. So, you know, you're really, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, you're really successful because your parents did it. Well, um, his passion came through, I thought. Um, and so therefore, you know, I think that puts that one to bed. Uh, any other questions? Um, I love interviewing billionaires. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, you know, there aren't that many of them. There's only a few thousand of them. So they are to a certain degree unicorns. I think they know things that people, mere mortals at a much smaller level, do not know. Um, I just think you get a fascinating insight. For, for years, I've been saying billion, billionaires are not what you think if you think they are greedy, power hungry, evil capitalist bastards, which a lot of opposite of that, communist socialists or, you know, um, whatever might think um, or pseudo versions of those. And we have we have never, ever interviewed a billionaire that I haven't really admired and really liked or thought is greedy and power hungry. Never. Um, Harry, how have you seen the podcast evolve? You know, what do you th what what do you think of the work we're doing and where do you want to see it going? I think there's been a massive growth, uh, growth particularly in the past year. Um, not just in terms of numbers, in terms of the podcast, in terms of YouTube and all that, but just a development in the concept and the ideas and the risks that we seem to be taking. Again, with the content that you talk about, a lot about mental health uh, over the past year, the risks you've taken with the people you've interviewed, you spoke about likes of Katie Hopkins, how much shit you got for that one, and, you know, I think you pulled it off. And what I want to see from all of us is take more risks. With no risk, there is no reward. And as you say, Rob, if you don't risk anything, you don't risk you know, your very famous face. So yeah. I think doing more of that and I thrive and enjoy taking these risks particularly when we get big wins so I'd say more risk okay well, I'm up for taking more risks uh, yeah within reason um, yeah I want to keep taking some risks I don't know what that necessarily looks like I think taking risks with questions you know asking Jordan Belfort when was the last time he took drugs that's a risk <laughs> asking, asking people their net worth when you know they don't really want to be asked that's a risk so I think I'm I think I'm I always said to you, Harry, I want my guests to come off my show and really enjoy it and feel like that was a good use of an hour. I really enjoyed it. Like, I'd, of course, I'd like them to like me, but then a lot, I'm going to make friends with a lot of them, but a lot of them are not going to remember me and they're going to move on with their life. But I want them to really enjoy that hour and feel like it was good value to them. So that's why I've never really wanted to be a journal or to ask really hard questions or be a bit interrogated etc but because i wanted to do that with jordan because the, the the interrogative questions were ones i wanted to ask and katie i had to didn't i, I couldn't go in all soft with katie Hopkins. i had to ask those questions i think that's opened up another realm to us where i can take some risks with those questions but what's happened is my audience has got so used to me building good rapport with my guests some of them found the jordan one a bit cold um yeah. But, but I was okay with it. Why? Why were you okay? I was okay with it because I didn't want to pretend to be his mate because I wasn't. Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't, I just wasn't. And so people were expecting a lot more rapport and banter. But when he's sitting there slating Grant Cardone, who I'm friends with, I'm, I'm not going to sit there ch laughing at him. I'm just going to listen. 
Um, so I felt like I needed my own integrity there to just remain enough distance. You know, like when you meet someone for the first time and you're not sure, you, you, you know, you're not, you, you're going to stand back a little bit, aren't you, for a little while? Surely that's just smart. Um, and I think people misread that. And, and by the way, some people said, oh, you could have got more out of him. I, I asked him 23 questions in 48 minutes or something like that. I've never asked anyone 23 questions. Um, I, I asked David Icke about one question in about a three-hour episode. Um, so I, 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 I gave him a good go at, at going deep. How hard is that? Because I know personally it's not within your nature to have a game plan to go and expose someone. And I know just as a person, as a human being, you want to be warm and charming, you know, charming and open with people. So how was it going into like the Jordan Belford interview in that kind of bit more reserved manner? Yeah, it was different because you're right. I want to be all warm and fluffy and cuddly. I want to pull good content out of them. I want to give you your sound bites, but I want them to enjoy it. I want my listeners to get really good value. So I don't ask all the gimmicky questions that aren't content driven, but we kind of did to more of a degree, didn't we, with Jordan? Um, because I guess he's that kind of caricature. So yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit more nervous about that, um, but I also wanted to challenge myself. So I just went in with a bit more of a game face, and you know, not not so much rapport at the start. Cracked on with it, got the job done. Um, yeah, I didn't feel like there wasn't rapport there. It's harder to build rapport when you're on Skype or Zoom, you know, thousands of miles away. It's much harder than when you're with them face-to-face. -face. And we've got some great guests coming up face-to-face, -face, by the way, when the lockdown is over. Great guests. We, some of the big names we decided to not interview online and wait. We've got three really amazing guests agreed. that are, You know, really amazing. I'm really excited about it. Um, and, I, and, you know, I'll be able to create a lot more rapport with them because I'll be, um, you know, sitting next to them and speaking to them for half an hour before. And you can't do that on a Skype or a Zoom. So it's a different game. And, yeah, you know, Harry, I, I'm always way more keen going to meet them. I'd fly, I'd fly, I'd fly to America. I'd, Harry and Kieran, I'd fly you to America for the right guest. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm flying to America. Job done. Elon Musk, I'll fly to America. Go wherever they want to go. Because I think you... I still think you get a better show when you're face to face, but obviously in lockdown, it's challenged me again to do them remotely. What do you think um, Tim's answer would have been to what does disruptive mean to him? You didn't get to ask him that. So what do you think in the 44 minutes you had with him that uh, what do you think his response would have been? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think companies that change the future, he might've said, cause he was talking about the future, wasn't he? Mm. You know, companies that change the world, companies that connect, you know, the masses, like he talked about Skype and Hotmail being companies that connect the world. So I think he might have said those things. Cool. I reckon we should call it a day. If you like these little debriefs, let us know. Um, and we might debrief. We won't necessarily do um, 30 minutes. But if you like the debriefs and us talking about the guest afterwards, and if you've got you want to be involved in that Q&A, let us know. And we'll do it. I want to get Harry and Kieran and Tom more involved in the front end of the show. Harry obviously does some of the intros. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I hope you're up for that, Harry. I, I, you know, I know you've always respected that the show isn't about you, but it is. 
um, because you're heavily involved in it. Um, so we need to have more Harry. We should interview you one day, Harry. Get me drunk, then interview me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, do, I'll get you pissed. I'll take you to Burger and Lobster and get you pissed. Because I, I reckon we could pull something good out of that, the, the best moments. Um, you, you know, what's it like from your perspective? You know, the creative direction of the show. You know, all those kind of things. I'm going for that. That sounds all right. All right. Cool. So make sure you go and follow um, Tim Draper on all socials. Make sure you grab his book. Um, I believe it's called Yeah, Start Up Hero. Uh, so his book, Start Up Hero. Please support. I mean, look, he doesn't need your money. But um, he also gave his email address if you want to pitch him for your unicorn future company. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Over and out.